Hello and welcome to the Warp Podcast. My name's David Tiltman and this episode is the third in a series we've put together with the B2B Institute at LinkedIn on a concept called Promise to the Customer. In this series, we're exploring this idea in detail and asking whether it helps marketers get to strategies that are easier to communicate to the C-suite and communications ideas that are more effective. Now, we at Walk have worked with the team at LinkedIn and the renowned strategist and CEO advisor, Roger Martin, to test these ideas. And in Cannes, we released a report together that detailed research into our case study database that starts to validate this model. Now, in this third episode, we go beyond the research to look at some real-life examples, two marketing initiatives that have a promise to the customer at their heart. We talk to some of the teams behind that work to find out where the idea came from, how they executed it, and the success they've seen as a result. Both examples predate the promise to the customer research, but as you'll hear, both were using similar ideas and similar approaches. Later on, we'll be hearing about how a challenger bank in the UK found an opportunity in an underserved market. But first, we're going to talk to Jason Carmel, global lead for creative data at Wonderman Thompson, who was one of the team behind an initiative called Speaking in Colour for a paint company called Sherwin-Williams. Now, this was the winner of the first ever B2B Grand Prix in Cannes and, topically, involves AI and data analysis as well as a deep understanding of its audience. So let's hear from Jason. So Jason, you're, you're a creative data lead. I, just tell us a little bit about what that, what that means and how you came to be involved uh, in the campaign we're going to be talking about uh, with Sherwin-Williams. Yeah, sure. So the creative data group, I would say, isn't isn't really a normal instance at an agency, but it really is kind of at the core of what we're trying to do, which is to take all of the data and technology that's new and interesting in the world and put it actually in the ideas that are creative themselves. I think a lot of times what the data teams around the world have done is they've sort of limited themselves to predicting things like, is this going to work? Is this a good idea? And then measuring things. Was that a good idea? Did it work? How could we optimize? And I don't think we spend enough time putting data in the, the, the ideas itself to make it rad, to make it interesting and playful and personal. And so that's what my team uh, was built to do, was to help creative people, as they're coming up with these fantastic ideas, actually use the data that's right there on the floor in front of them to make those ideas even better. Great, thank you. Now we're talking about uh, a campaign called "Speaking in Color," which uh, was developed with Wonderman Thompson uh, for a company called Sherwin Williams. And this this one, um, just for context, this won the inaugural B two B Grand Prix uh, at Canlines back in twenty twenty two, and we've used it within uh, within the recent white paper we've produced uh, uh, from Walk with the LinkedIn B two B Institute on Promise to the Customer. Um, for people who aren't familiar with this campaign, uh, just talk talk us to us a little bit about about the client and about the brief that they came to your team and Wonderman Thompson with. Sure. Uh, so Sherwin-Williams is a global producer of paint, and that's paint that you use to paint your house uh, or your rooms in your house. But it's also paints that are for the outside of buildings or for stairwells or for, um, uh, you know, metal uh, extrusions that are on buildings. And uh, that was actually the group that we were working with. They're, it's called the Coil and Coatings Division, and their primary customer are architects who are building these gorgeous structures and then need to coat them with uh, paint in order to keep them weatherproof properly and to make them beautiful. Um, so that was the, uh, the, the the client specifically that we were working with. And uh, I would say as far as the brief it, it itself, they don't have a problem with uh, getting their paints known around the, the world. Architects are already using them. They're one of the, um, the leaders in the industry. I think what they were trying to do was to actually push further up the funnel, I suppose, uh, to be a partner with architects as they're choosing the color and not just after they've decided what color to pick. 
and just to order it from a menu. So they wanted to be perceived as partners in the creative process with the architects um, as much as they were partners in the delivery process with the actual paint. And in terms of then how you took that forward uh, and and developed the the campaign we're going to talk about, what went into that thinking? What 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 were you sort of what were the sort of insights you drew on, and the uh, and and how did you get from from there through to a through to a solution? Well, yeah. So the I, I think architects are uh, a very interesting combination of both a very technical career, a very technical study, but also very artistic. So there's you know, a little bit of diva in every architect, just like there is in a musician yeah. or, 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 or painters or something like that. And so they really want their vision seen in, in these buildings. And um, I, I think the insight came uh, from a, an anecdote, actually, that we were, we were told by one of Sherwin's uh, architect clients. There was an architect who built the uh, Penguin Conservancy in the Detroit Zoo. So you go to the Detroit Zoo, you want to see cute little penguins. You go to this building where they house them, and it's actually shaped like a, an iceberg, or it's shaped in a, in a way that's reminiscent of an iceberg. And it's a beautiful building, and the architect wanted the color of that building uh, to be reminiscent of icebergs as well. So he did, or, or they did what I think any of us would have done, which was to fly to Antarctica and actually look at icebergs. Um, any, I mean, any of us would have done that. <laughs> of course, you know, just uh, your standard, <laughs> yeah, you send it pop to the store and then over to Antarctica to pick up some photos of icebergs. And the, uh, the architects used that to help create this color that was then turned into a paint that Sherwin Williams created for that building. And I, I think that insight of the lengths that, that architects will go to to find their perfect color uh, was just was huge and how could and and the, so then the insight came was uh further was how can we help architects do this without requiring them to travel halfway around the world to get uh, photographs could we partner with them in a way in a playful way um that that will allow them to experiment with color and find their specific color for their specific project right and just just describe for us quickly what what that actually then turned into for for people who don't know the the, the project Sure. So the the campaign itself, or the, the the application itself, is called Speaking in Color, and it allows you to do just that. The architect can describe a color in natural language, so they don't have to provide hex colors or even color language at all. But could it be something very emotive, like um, the color of a Maui sunset uh, during the summer, just after a monsoon. And then uh, what our app does is it uses natural language processing to unpack color language, and then it plots the, that on a map. And it searches uh, for those terms. Uh, it compiles hundreds of thousands of images, and then it breaks those images down pixel by pixel. And it counts the color pixels and then gives the, um, the architect a data visualization of the most popular colors in that uh, in that space. And then the color can, the architect can look at those colors and say, all right, I meant that third one. That third one is really interesting for me. Uh, so, um, let's tweak it. Let's make it a little darker, a little, um, I'll add a little bit more pink. And all of this is done via voice. And so at the end, the architect is given a very specific bespoke color that they helped co-create with Sherwin-Williams. So they're not picking from a catalog an infinite catalog of colors that Sean Williams is giving them. They are picking their own color and they're in fact helping to create it. So the, the flip there, I think was really meaningful for architects because it gave them ownership of their, of the colors that they were dreaming. Right. I, now I appreciate the limitations of trying to describe color on a podcast, but uh, I think we can listen to a, a quick clip from uh, the, the, the campaign video uh, from the Walk and Lions database. So let's have a quick listen to that. The first ever AI color system is designed to help architects and like-minded visionaries find colors based on personal inspiration. All they have to do is say the words. Let's try crystal clear Caribbean ocean. Yeah, that's it. Speaking in color is voice activated and instantly analyzes millions of images via a search algorithm and optical recognition technology to create a personalized color palette. Through conversation and the intuitive power of AI, users easily discover... Maybe that's too blue. Let's lighten it up just a little bit. Refine... I like that. Let's add a little bit more green. 
and find their one in a million colour. I love it. That's perfect. I've sort of described this as a campaign a couple of times, but it's not it's not typical communications, is it? This is actually co-creating a product for a uh, for a client that that actually helps them solve a, a customer problem. Is that is that fair? I think it's totally fair. I and I think that was done intentionally, especially with a, a group like architects who are so attent whose attentions are so divided among so many things. Uh if you don't add value, if you don't add utility, uh, I think you just break the the promise that you made to them full stop. Right. And you've actually just used the term promise. So let's let, let's bring this into the sort of theme of these podcasts, which is about do we need to start thinking more about making a promise to the customer, which, uh, you know, as we've 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 discussed on the previous podcasts is this sort of framework that's been developed by um, the B2B LinkedIn Institute and Roger Martin. Does that sort of language about making a promise to the customer and actually putting yourself on the line and saying we'll we'll we will do something that will make your lives easier or better in some way does that resonate with you in terms of this project is that something whether you were using that language or not was that something you were trying to do i i think it was explicitly part of the project to to align to the promise that sherwin williams makes to its its customers specifically uh to the the architect as a customer. Uh, I think one of the the promises they make, uh, and I won't do as good a job as uh, describing it as someone from uh, Sean Williams would, but in essence, it's um, to uh, create innovation with color um, mm-hmm. is, is this promise. And in fact, um, I know lines are different than promises, but the line that they use for their um, coil and coatings business is color can do anything. So it's really this uh, idea of um, our in our business for Sherwin Williams, we can paint can do a lot of wonderful things. The future, the technology involved with paint is quite fascinating, and in fact, their product already pays off on that. So you can get paints that are uh, much more uh, climate friendly now, thanks to the the improvements that Sherwin Williams has made. They have metallics that are very shiny and can actually change color as the sun reflects on them. So this idea of innovation already shines through with the the, the product. Um, and what they wanted to do was to push that innovation up into the into a more playful way that allows um, ideation to be innovative as well. Um, and so the ability to use artificial intelligence to create a way for uh, an architect to just uh, create their color through speaking um, it was just a really fun way to make good on that promise. Mm. So in this case, the sort of the sort of promise is 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 not just a sort of brand statement or positioning it's actual sort of product innovation combined with with sort of uh marketing firepower yeah i think that's exactly it i mean you do obviously see the uh hints of that promise throughout the marketing but i think the promise is way more uh genetic for sherwin williams that innovation um the things that they're doing to make their paints more um resilient um more useful more beautiful um, is something that that is important to them, and they wanted to push forward um, into this this marketing campaign. And so, building a technology um, felt right for that, as opposed to just doing something that's a little more more comms based. Right, right. So that that from your perspective, that's something that's a very sort of joined up uh, joined up idea within within that client business. It's not just hundred percent just coming. Yeah. We just talk a little bit about the way you then sort of act, like the the activation. So the there's a there's a sort of framework within a framework, if you like. So if we think of a promise to the customer, the the idea is that uh, a, a good promise should meet sort of three different criteria. It should be memorable, valuable, and deliverable. Mm-hmm. Um, if we just sort of take those in in turn, I mean, maybe we've already talked about the value. It's valuable uh if we start with valuable i mean um, it's valuable to the architects because they're finding colors quicker without jetting off to antarctica mm-hmm. is that is that a fair summary is there anything else that's sort of valuable about valuable about this no i i think that's the primary if you if you go through that rubric of memorable valuable and deliverable the value there is how can i create my own color give me a tool that lets me do that so that i don't have to travel around the world so that i can explain things more evocatively i mean you can use you don't have to use color language for this. We had so much fun building, you know, uh, building things. So, all right, make that color. That color is good, but make it a little more evil. <laughs> and our 
um, app will actually take that and unpack what that means. For us, uh, that is the value there of allowing them to do that. And that also pushes, I think, into the memorable aspect of it, where yeah. it's done in such a an amazingly playful way um, for something that I think is otherwise, uh, when you think B2B, you think serious, you think white papers and, and et cetera, et cetera. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't have to be that exclusively. And so the idea of doing this in a way that allowed um, a uh, an architect not even to have to type anything, but to have these colors auto-magically appear based on the, their voice, I think pushes from the valuable into the memorable as well. Yeah. I, and let's just focus a little bit on the deliverable piece, because this this is one of those those things that lives or dies by execution yeah like this mm-hmm. if if this thing doesn't work then it's it's not it's not going to live up to the to the valuable piece at all is it so so just talk to me a little bit about how you ensured that this was a, this was a promise that you could deliver on well i i think there are two deliverable promises nested within this campaign the first is does the app work so if i ask it for a maui sunset and it gives me black um i'm immediately going to who disregard this as a waste of time. Mm. And so uh, for us, that's a technical problem to solve. Uh, and we did just that. It was a question of using, uh, I think, uh, natural language, computer vision, uh, a, a lot of tools that are there, and stapling about five or six uh, different machine learning processes together to make sure that the the, the colors that are represented are, are, are valid. Um, we also wanted to give people the ability, I think, to correct as well. So if I if I say, give me a Maui sunset, I might think pink, you might think lavender, somebody else might think purple or orange or yellow, mm. and none of us is wrong. Um, and so the uh, what we built into the app was the ability for the architect to kind of guide the app to course correct itself to help that deliverable aspect of it be, be unimpeachable. Um, I yeah. think the second deliverable aspect of it is, okay, well, now can I get a paint that matches my dream? And at the end of the process, we actually give you a color swatch of the paint that you just described, and they can the the architect can then take that to the um, – it's a digital version, obviously, but they can take that to their, their Sherwin-Williams representative and say, this is what I want. This is my color. And so then the the deliverable of being able to get any kind of color that you can dream of is met as well. So I think deliverability for this was um, uh, was was huge, and I think um, for both of those aspects, it it, it reflected very well in Sherwin, Sherwin Williams. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely a lovely thing you've built. But what's the actual you know what's the actual sort of results? Because our our viewpoint or our sort of research uh, based on the Walk database is that this sort of promise based campaign can be very effective at be, uh, building certain brand metrics uh, and also pushing into sort of commercial impact as well so so talk to me a little bit about what's happened since uh since that campaign and, mm-hmm. and the impact it's had yeah no that's a great question one of the, actually one of the things i most appreciated about the uh paper that that you all wrote was the fact that um a lot of these campaigns the ones that are reflected on promise you measure them in terms of long-term results rather than short-term results. So it's not necessarily, it can be, but it's not necessarily did sales jump in the first week it was launched. Uh, yeah. And that's especially important for a uh, for something like Sherwin-Williams for this campaign for architects because you don't build buildings in a week. So even when the architects were using it, it is still 12 to 18 months best case before we would see the paint orders come in. So the short answer is, I don't know, and we don't know quite yet just how much it has influenced sales. But what we can tell you is that the engagement of the architect community with this uh, mechanism has gone through the roof, was way yeah. beyond expectations. Um, and so for us, what we're hopeful is that it not only will result um, as we start to see um, paints ordered for this, it will result in a um, in a stronger adherence to the the brand and, and to sales metrics. But it it also um, makes good in the original brief, which was now architects are a little bit more attached to Sherwin Williams as a mechanism to get their color made, um, and not to get a color from Sherwin Williams that they just sort of have to pick from uh, a menu. Yeah. 
and and how how that sort of product that app sort of developed since since that initial burst a, a couple of years ago is it something that um sherwin williams have kept investing in or developing or or improving yeah there so um there's a lot of uh discussion right now it, it has been it is being replatformed which is um uh, an architecturally very dry thing to do mm-hmm. it's the equivalent of putting a new roof on your house um, you have to do it, but at the end, you're a little sad because you just have a, a new roof. So it's sound in investment, but what we're doing now is replatforming it in its current state to the um, the development architecture that lives across Sherwin-Williams. And what we're hoping that does is uh, not only allow us to build more and new features for this, but allow maybe to expand it across other business units. So instead of just allowing uh, architects to use this to design buildings, can we allow you or I to use this to design colors for our house, things like that. Um, so that's the the hope. Um, the other thing I, I think is is really interesting that's also sort of hidden is uh, Sherwin Williams is also able to make use of just this vast amount of really interesting language data um, that they're collecting about how architects talk about color, um, and just going through that data for them is a really uh, fascinating and enlightening process from a product development perspective. We talked about the sort of external impact of the campaign. Has it has it changed anything at, at within Sherwin Williams, or is it has it had an impact internally, or changed the way it, it sees its customers or the world? I don't know that it it, it has impacted how Sherwin Williams sees its customers. It's always had a really good uh, relationship and understanding of, of especially the the architect as a customer. What what I think it has changed is. Um, maybe even an industry-wide over-reliance on owning the color name as IP. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm not an IP lawyer, and I, I don't want to talk about the, the specifics of that, but um, I mean, obviously, there's a, a great deal of value in, in holding on, onto that. And this color blue is our color blue, and we've named it uh, this color blue. And so it, that's, you know, you can't use that. But the idea of letting go of that a little bit to benefit your customers, to give them a little bit of co-creation uh, value out of it. I-, I think the success of allowing architects to do that has been really eye-opening. Um, so maybe it will open the door um, for a little bit of product co-creation in the future um, that uh, otherwise I don't think we would have paid too much attention to. Right. And I guess finally, just to finish off, um, for anyone else out there listening with whether it's a similar B2B customer or 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 in the B2C world, looking at this sort of promise of the customer framework, what, what advice would you give in terms of getting to a place that works or getting to an idea that that, that stands up to that sort of memorable, valuable, deliverable uh, a triptych? I, I think one of the things that was quite freeing for us was to not, well, how do I describe it? I, I think you can uh, be playful in how you make good on a promise. Um, I, I think a lot of people, like even just intuitively, will say, I'm going to make good on a promise. There's sort of visions of you falling on swords or, you know, jumping in front of buses in order to protect things. And yes, that's all very, very noble. But I think you can also make good on a promise of of who you are to somebody as a, as a brand in a very lighthearted, playful, enjoyable, delightful way. And that if you're open to that sort of experience, um, I, I think it'll be actually refreshing for the consumer as well. Um who maybe doesn't want somebody right up in their face telling them how much they desperately love them. You know, maybe just, you know, you know, buy me a coffee first. Let's take it easy. Let's, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's, so I, I think having a, a little bit of um, uh, delight and surprise, being a little more playful with the promise is maybe something we don't think about first. Um, that's one of the things that I, I learned from this campaign myself is is that um, we didn't have to um, oversell it. We just gave a really um, playful mechanism for architects to do something. Um, and in so doing, we actually connected uh, to the promise at a level that was much more effective than doing something maybe more serious. That's a great piece of advice. And I think, I think, you know, when we talk about promise to the customer, it's very easy to think of that in very sort of quite dull serious usp kind of kind of ways but but actually what you just said is it it, it opens up the door for a for, for much more playful interactions with your customers um i love that jason thank you so much for your time for your insights and uh, congratulations again on uh, on a very successful uh, initiative 
Thanks, David. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jason. Uh, well, that was absolutely fascinating insight into that campaign. So let's, let's hear about another one. The second campaign we're going to hear about comes from Starling Bank, a challenger bank in the UK. Now, this one is also a B2B campaign. Its target was SME banking customers. But as we'll hear, it recognised that operating more like a B2C brand would help it win the trust of potential customers. And at the heart was a very clear understanding of the problems Starling was offering to solve for its customers. To find out more, I spoke to Rachel Carone, Director of Brand and Marketing at Starling Bank, and Jess Lovell, founder and CSO of their agency, Wonderhood. Okay, so Rachel, Jess, thank you for joining us. Uh, firstly, let's just let's just get a sense of of who you are and how you how you come to be associated with uh, with the sort of Starling Bank campaign we're going to be talking about. So, Rachel, why don't you you kick us off? Yeah, thanks, David. Um, so I'm Rachel Carone. I am brand and marketing director at Starling Bank. Have been there since 2017. Um, so for about the past six years. Um, which was the year that the app went to market. So it's been a pretty exciting growth journey um, in terms of our customer growth um, and our brand growth in that time. Uh, my role at Starling is that I lead all of our brand and marketing work um, and work closely, obviously, with our agency partners um, like Jess. Great. Jess, over to you. Hi, I'm Jess Lovell. I'm a founder and chief strategy officer at Wonderhood Studios. And um we pitched for the Starling business back in 2019. It was Rachel, wasn't it? And um, uh, we have been working with them um, since then, uh, developing various different campaigns. Uh, and it's been amazing, actually, to see Starling go from something which was very kind of new and um, emerging into something which is, feels like it's a real force of nature in the banking world. Great. So we're going to be talking about, um, I guess, a campaign or a series of campaigns, which is called Helping Business Fly. Uh, Starling Bank is a is a sort of challenger bank. It's a startup bank. So Rachel, tell us about uh, a little bit about that sort of background. Uh, when you were coming into this campaign in like 2019, 2020, where was, where was the company at? What was it trying to achieve? And how did that sort of turn into into a brief uh, for, for Wonderhood and for Jess? So Starling was set up primarily to disrupt the banking industry, so both for SMEs and for consumers in the UK. Um, this campaign really came about, and it was our, it was our very first um, above-the-line SME campaign, actually. So it really came about because it was very important to us, obviously, as a startup business ourselves, to support those UK SMEs and help them to succeed. So you know they'd been underserved for a long time by the by the big banks here in the here and many of them sort of didn't know that there was a better option available so you know starling was was here to disrupt that market um and we wanted to kind of i guess raise awareness of that using this campaign um to begin with so really sort of helping businesses fly giving them the tools to help them succeed but also kind of doing it in quite an authentic way and showing that actually there are going to be challenges along the way um but you know starling are kind of here to to help help businesses through those and as you say there, this this was targeted at SMEs. So the, the the target audience here isn't the sort of customer banking sector, it's the it's the business banking sector, yeah. For this campaign initially, um, it was the business banking sector, yes. So certainly the sort of, you know, the entrepreneurs, the smaller of those SMEs. And we, we were, I guess, one of the other um, sort of reasons for us doing the campaign when we did um, was not only a promise to the customer, but also to the government. So we received a grant of 100 million, um, which was to disrupt and deliver innovation to the business banking sector um, through delivering new features and products. So, yeah, we that was kind of the grant that we received. Pleased to say that we delivered on all of those commitments um, actually at the end of last year. So, yeah, kind of an, another another reason for, for running the campaign at this time great thank you so so Jess that that's the sort of background how did you sort of take that and run with it well it was really interesting because I think when we um were given the brief as part of a pitch process uh, so it was us and um some uh, two or three other agencies uh, I think the first thing that we wanted to do was to 
um, really get underneath the skin of that uh, consumer segment. So really understand what was happening in the segment. Uh, Starling had a really clear position, which was about disrupting uh, business banking. And so we wanted to understand how they were being served at the moment and what the issues were. So our approach, as it often is when we kind of start in a new category and start um thinking about a new brief was to uh, spend time talking to that audience. So we went out and did really quite a lot of um, in-depth consumer research with small and medium-sized businesses to just really understand the challenges that they were facing, to to talk to them about what they were getting or not getting um, from their current banking providers. And I think to try and unlock emotionally what it was that the journey of setting up a small business was all about And it was really that that led to the idea of um, uh, helping businesses fly. I think it's really interesting because we didn't think about it in deliberate um, terms as a promise to the consumer, but actually through going through that process of understanding what it was that customers were needing. And actually, of course, that's what uh, Starling had been doing by uh, thinking about how they were disrupting it. It, it actually manifested that we were going through a process of really trying to understand how consumers were being served at the moment and what we could do and what we could promise them that would be different. I, I really like that idea of um, the that sort of challenger nature and how how a, this concept of the promise to the customer, even though you weren't using it at the time, sort of was a natural fit with what you were you were trying to achieve uh, uh, for uh, for what you felt was a sort of underserved audience. Um, Rachel, do you do you see this idea of of promise uh, as being being particularly powerful for for a brand that's in that sort of position? So a sort of challenger, a sort of fast growth brand, and as you say, a, a, a you know with a direct mandate from government. Definitely, you know, I think as I've already mentioned, you know, we were we started out as a, a startup and, and a scale up business ourselves not so long ago. Um, so, you know, I think we very much kind of understand that that stage of the journey that a lot of businesses are at. And, you know, we I don't know how much you know about the Starling story, but, you know, we were phone, founded by Anne Bowden, um, who was and still is the only woman to have ever founded a bank in the UK. So hers is a pretty incredible story of real sort of determination to change and disrupt an industry that has been around for hundreds of years. Um, And I think particularly for those small businesses who are the lifeblood of our economy, but they were just being so underserved. Um, So I think, yeah, you know, our developing this positioning with Wonderhood, it was really important to us to kind of show how you know, we could really make a difference and we could kind of really make a change to these entrepreneurs and small businesses. I I think one of the things that we really unlocked through the research that we did was the fact that starting up a business is a real journey and it's a journey of sort of ups and downs. And you see it literally represented in the ad, but it was, there was a lovely synergy between the experience of Starling and us as a, as a startup um, agency as well, kind of going through that same process, the highs, the lows, the ups, the downs, it's not a straight um, forward journey. And actually what you want then is a partner or a business um, or a bank um, who's going to be by your side, helping you to, um, to manage the the turmoil of that journey. And it just felt like it was a really sort of nice um, connection between the experience of Starling, the experience of Wonderhood, and what we were hearing from all of the people that were um, talking to us about their experiences of setting up a business as well. And Rachel, just just in terms of, uh, you talk about a little bit of that startup story at, at Starling, and this feels, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this feels like it's, you know, it's not just a sort of, tagline or a or a sort of positioning that you clever positioning you came up with it it's sort of quite fundamental to to the way the whole business sees itself is that is that fair that's very fair and i think you know this for us this isn't it, it, this wasn't just a marketing campaign this is something that you know we we wanted this campaign and this ad and this platform to kind of symbolize the struggles that Anne herself went through as an entrepreneur when she set up starling um and as jess said you know it 
it never is just plain sailing. You know, there's always lots of turbulence and storms along the way, but actually, you know, with perseverance and resilience and all those great things, you know, you can make it through as a business. And I think it was quite, it was quite emotional actually, you know, going through something like this as, you know, when you're going through it yourself and as Jess said, you know, Wonderhood were a growing business at the same time. So yeah, it very much came from the heart um, rather than just a pure marketing campaign. Now we we talk in the paper about about sort of the three facets of a successful promise being memorable, valuable, and deliverable. I think we've talked a bit about how you ensured it it was going to be valuable to the end user, and and, and indeed how it's going to be deliverable. But we can talk a bit about how you made sure it was memorable, and then that comes down into the sort of execution of 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 what you do and how you bring it bring it to the. Uh, to the target audience so so Jess talk to me a little bit about how you got from these sort of insights and the this sort of understanding of of uh the the needs of this audience into into the execution that you did which was quite unusual for a challenger bank uh, at the time so so talk to us a little bit about that one of the things we did was to have a really clear sense of what our positioning was versus the competition so you had on the one hand uh a cohort of energy um, and challenger banks within the uh, within the banking sector, who were all sort of startups. They were, had a lot of um, fresh injection of new ideas, and you had the very established banks as well. On the other hand, and actually, what we did was say, right, with those challenger banks, you would trust them with your your latte, you'd trust them with your um, you trust them with your bus fare, you trust them kind of in those day to day expenses. But actually, that building of trust for something as important as a business requires a substance. And then on the other hand, you had the established players in the banking sector, the kind of legacy banks, um, who who did have that kind of fundamental substance and trust and heaviness. But actually what they weren't doing was, was challenging the marketplace. So we talked about um, Starling as a challenger bank with substance, and it felt like it brought the best of those two worlds. So I think the first thing we did was to kind of develop a really, really clear understanding of our positioning and the importance of kind of building trust alongside that innovation. Um, and then it was things like thinking about creating a suite of distinctive assets, thinking about how you make that work kind of really, really memorable, because actually the money in a in a challenger is uh, that you spend on marketing is so so precious i mean it's always precious but it's particularly precious when you're establishing something from scratch and you have to think about how it's all adding up so thinking about the distinctive assets that we were creating thinking about the way in which the the campaign visually looked um thinking about creating something that was really distinctive within the marketplace as well and i think also thinking about how what we were building for business also had a really important role to play in terms of building the credibility and the, and um, what the brand was about for the um, the uh, retail banking part of Starling Bank as well. So the money was kind of being invested into the business part of it and the SME part of it, but actually thinking about the fact that this was going to be overheard by this retail banking customer as well. So we needed to be making sure that we weren't creating a siloed brand as well, but something that could um, could work between them. Um, and then I think the final thing was just thinking about the media as well. So a lot of the challenger banks were on, at the time were on tube cards, they were underground, they were cheap media. And thinking about if we were going to build trust, if you want to have that substance and actually you need to take it overground rather than underground you need to think about the company that you're keeping from a media point of view because that's all about building that credibility and that trust that really is setting starling apart from the the challenger part of the marketplace and that was that that was tv or tv was a large part of it yeah TV um, was a big part of it, yeah, and thinking about kind of big hero spots and um, not just hiding it away kind of on daytime or in, in the cheaper media, but really thinking about the company that we were keeping from a media point of view um, in the TV choices that were being made, but also um, posters as well, having a poster campaign that was out and about. And um, I think the semiotics of the media was a really important part of the strategy. Uh, I think we can hear a quick clip from one of those executions. So let's hear that now. Your bank shouldn't weigh you down. That's why Starling helps you fly. We're always fair, with no hidden fees to catch you out. Always fast, moving as quickly as you do to give you complete control over your money. And always open, with 24-7 UK customer support. It's no wonder we've been voted Britain's best bank three years in a row. Join over a million customers and download the Starling app today. Starling Bank. Helping Britain fly. Now, Rachel, um, 
was it a surprise when when Jess and the team suggested TV? I mean, was it was this a sort of a nice surprise, or or, or was it was it a sort of oh my god, I'm gonna have to spend some serious money on this? I think it was. It, it wasn't a surprise because I think we were all very uh behind the fact that you know we we really needed to do something quite memorable um you know we have a saying at starling that you know b2b marketing doesn't have to be boring and i think particularly in banking quite a lot of the b2b advertising has been quite dull over the years so we knew going into this that we really wanted to do something quite different something quite epic something that kind of showed the human elements of of a bank and also our customers but something that kind of showed the reality and the true ups and downs of running a business. So we all went into this with a disruptor mindset, but also, you know, that we wanted to do something quite different. And we were all quite excited about that. So, you know, when TV came up as one of the key channels, you know, we we saw that as a real opportunity to get in front of lots and lots of customers, really increase our brand awareness. And as we said earlier, you know, this isn't just about our SME customers, it's about our retail customers as well. You know, we were growing a brand right across the board. So we wanted a halo effect from both. Great. So you saw that opportunity that even you you did to, to go beyond the immediate target of the uh, of the, the campaign, and and just talk to me a little bit about the timing of it because it this happened sort of through the pandemic, didn't it? So you, while a lot of other players were pulling back, you were you were continuing to invest. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And that was um, yeah, obviously interesting times for all of us, I think. But yeah, I think one we we talked about trust briefly earlier. And I think, you know, when you're a bank particularly and you're asking people to give you their money to look after, people have to trust you. They have to know who you are, but they also have to trust you as a brand. Um, so it was really important to us that customers knew that we were there to support them kind of through the good times and the bad. So I think when the pandemic hit, and particularly for our business customers, they were so impacted what was with what was happening. It was more important for ever, than ever for us to be there for our customers and to be really, really visible. And that had a really great brand impact for us. And yeah, it led us to a real increase in awareness, but also trust during that period. It's interesting. It was obviously a context of immense uncertainty. And actually, the commitment that Starling had to the campaign and to making sure that we played it out in in and and kind of carried on with it was really really important and i and i think as rachel says that thing about trust and what it signified in the context of the uncertainty felt really really important and it was a big decision to keep going with it in when there was all of this uncertainty around but actually i think it was really the right decision because it was using the context to reassure people I mean, it helped that it was a shed and everybody was moving to their garden shed. So there was a, there was a sort of um, familiarity to it. I think the idea of a, of a home office uh, when we were developing it was slightly more marginalised than it became um, through the pandemic. Um, but uh, I think we also we also changed the line as well. So it was about help business um, helping business fly to help Britain fly. So it was a real sense of trying to capitalize um but by by really understanding what the nation needed as well so really thinking about kind of the spirit and what people needed and and um making sure that we were on people's side not just on businesses side as well to to follow up on Jess's point we did some um really interesting research actually during this period that we called the shed economy so we looked at obviously it was the beginning of the pandemic people were working from home lots of people were kind of in their garden offices or or garden sheds. Um, And we did some great research that showed that 17, the shed economy was worth 17 billion in the UK as thousands of entrepreneurs were choosing sort of garden workspaces over office spaces. We did lots of PR around the campaign at the time as well. Talk to me a little bit about the impact. So in terms of either sort of improvements in brand, brand perception, those sorts of things, and then into sort of commercial impact. So so Rachel, do you want to sort of start here? Yeah, I mean, during this time, you know, I think it, it was an interesting time because, you know, not only had the pandemic hit, um, obviously, you know, we saw a drop in the in the value of media, um, but also lots of people who perhaps hadn't considered digital banks in the past suddenly couldn't go to their bank branch on their high street. So 
you know, our, our customer numbers actually during that period, because obviously you can do all of your banking with Starling purely from your phone. So we really saw our customer numbers rise during that period, sort of partly because of the external environment, but also because of the campaign that we're running. Um, we saw our awareness go up, um, consideration quite considerably, um, and also familiarity for the brand. So I think during that period, you know, sort of before and after the campaign, our brand awareness went up by about 25%. So, you know, really significant. Uh, the other metric that really shifted was on trust. Um, and I mean, obviously, people shifting banks doesn't happen very much. It's a very sort of established behavior and there are some great stats about the fact that people are married for longer than uh sorry a divorce more often than they change their banks and and things like that so if you're going to get somebody to um change their bank account trust becomes absolutely fundamental and it worked really hard against those metrics as well and what's happened since that that sort of period where where have you taken this in the post-pandemic era rachel I mean, in in the last, you know, sort of focusing on on business specifically in five years, we've now got more than half a million SME customers. So that equates to about 10% of the SME total banking market in the UK. Um, So a huge uplift. Um, In terms of retail, it's a very similar growth story. We have continued to invest in advertising um, for both business and retail. And, you know, it's been really important kind of as we're building that customer base to continue to build the brand. Um, and, you know, I think the people bank with Starling because it makes their financial life easier. Um, it makes things simpler. We have a brilliant app experience and we're constantly evolving. So, you know, we kind of, we talk about, we're always changing things for the better. Our mission is to change banking for good, but, you know, I think it's just that constant evolving of, of an improvement. So we're kind of always giving our customers this really delightful experience and everything we they do with us as a brand. One of the things that's really amazing about Starling is the kind of constant innovation, the constant seeing how they can improve, iterating, changing things, um, looking at what's working, looking at what's not working, and then really, really quickly adapting to sort of continuously optimize the product, which is a really extraordinary thing. So we then went on to do a campaign which was more rooted in the um, retail banking space, which was here to change, but used that kind of principle of actually the relationship between uh, retail banking and business banking to then extend it into a, a business banking space, that campaign. And I think that's the, you know, the sort of been one of the really key things that we've learned with our most recent campaign and also the previous campaign that we've been talking about today that, you know, all of our ad campaigns can actually speak to all of our audiences, you know, and a campaign for SMEs doesn't have to alienate consumers and ads that have more of a consumer focus still appeal to the SMEs because actually our product offering and our features that we're offering might be slightly different, but actually the simplicity and the UX across the whole product offering is the same. And Rachel, in terms of the of internally within uh, within Starling, how has the success of these campaigns helped you as a marketer make a case internally or join the dots with other departments? Is there anything there in terms of the influence of marketing internally? We are, we and I am very lucky at Starling that we have a team of people who are very, very supportive about our brand and about growing our brand. And I think lots of what we do is, isn't just about marketing. It's actually in the DNA of the business. Um, so you know, continuously innovating, continuously looking at how we can change things for the better are all the reasons that Starling was originally founded investing in marketing um, is something that we'll always continue to do and we'll do that cross channel and you know we I guess my my job is to make Starling famous um we want to become one of the the established banks in the UK we're almost there and we've done that in you know a, a very short space of time compared to some of the other banks who have been around for about 300 years so you know we we're definitely on a journey um but yeah we will continue the growth of the brand and and our customers as we go. It's interesting when we developed the um, second campaign, what we did was spend a lot of time with Starling, really kind of getting under the skin of where the business was at, the spirit that um, existed within it. And that was one of the things that um, we really dramatized in the in the work was that actually this idea of changing banking for good, here to change, here to do things differently. There's such an authenticity that sits at the heart of it in terms of what Starling's all about and the way that they approach business. And actually 
that was what we sort of brought to life and dramatized actually that kind of challenge to the uh, established players um, and doing things differently. Um, and I just love the kind of authenticity to what Starling is all about um, and the energy that sits at the heart of it. Great. So we've been talking about this campaign within the, the context of a of promise to the customer. That's this, this sort of mental model. And again, you weren't using that mental model at the time, but it seems like it's a natural fit with the sort of thinking that's 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 coming through in, in the paper. Um, what advice would the two of you give to any marketers or agencies out there who might be looking to apply this this mindset? given given the success you've had and the and the the sort of way you got there um so rachel i'll start with you i think probably the biggest one it's it sounds really simple but is to listen to your customers you know we are constantly talking to and listening to our customers and you know they they actually come up with a lot of the great ideas that end up becoming part of the app experience um you know we work closely with our customer service teams we work closely with our engineers and between us we can make things happen so customers come up with an idea and we can you know within weeks that could actually you know that code could be written into the app so it's a it's like a a perfect circle of of great customer experience um so listening to your customers definitely um and just that that authenticity piece that we've talked about a lot today you know we we started our life you know we were founded to change things for the better and to change banking for better and i think sort of always staying really true to that north star is really really important for any business whether you're a startup or whether you're a very established brand i would completely agree with that i think if you're going to make a promise to the um the customer then you need to start with what the customer is looking for, what it is that you can do differently. And you need to start with what the business is all about and what the business stands for. And that was absolutely the stance that we took. We were thinking about how we could differentiate ourselves in a very crowded marketplace with very entrenched and established behaviors. And so we worked really hard to sort of understand what it was that differentiated us. And effectively, what that was, was about unlocking what that what the customers needed and what the promise was that Starling could deliver for them. So I think those two things, really understanding the business that you're working with, particularly in a service business actually, and what, what makes it tick and what makes it different and understanding kind of how that fits with the consumer needs, working really hard to kind of think about those two things uh, feels like a really good place to start. Jess, Rachel, thank you very much for your time and, and congratulations on a, on a really successful piece of work. So thank you very much. Thanks, David. Thanks. So a big thank you to Jess, Rachel, and again to Jason for sharing what they've learned as they've brought a promise to the customer to life. In the final episode in this series, we'll be looking at where the concept of promise to the customer can go next. We'll have our normal Walk podcast on Thursday, then release that final episode on Tuesday next week. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to the Walk Podcast on your favourite podcasting platform. And if you really liked it, please do leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.